Well, things were not going very well in Israel. The children of Israel had crossed the Jordan River. They had uh, partially settled the promised land. The tabernacle, which they had had along the way as they made their journey through the 40 years of wanderings, they set up at Shiloh, but there wasn't a lot going on. The the process of settling and occupying the, the, the land of Canaan had sort of stalled. And to make matters worse, they were attacked by the Philistines. And the story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Eli was the high priest at this time. His sons were quite wicked men who heeded nothing to curtail. And as the, the Israelites went to defend their recently settled territory from the kings coming from the uh, west, from the Philistines they ran into trouble, and in actuality, the battle went very much against them. And as they were thinking about what they could do to try to, try to turn the tide, to try to gain the victory over their enemies, they thought, aha, these pagan countries, when they come to fight, they bring their idols, their gods with them. What if we were to bring our own God with us? Maybe then the Lord would fight for us and we would have victory over our enemies, the Philistines. And uh, so they went back to the uh, tabernacle set up there at Shiloh, and they took what they considered, and we're going to see why they considered this, what they considered the most sacred of all the articles of furniture, so sacred that none of them had ever seen it. In fact, even when a priest was to go into the most holy place, or, um, well, we'll talk about that, but when they were to go into the most holy place once a year for that special ceremony, there was to be a specially large cloud of incense to fill the tent. And when the priests were to pack up the tabernacle to move it from one place to another, They would actually, we know this from the records of the rabbis, they would actually walk backwards with the coverings for this article of furniture and not actually look at it. They held this piece of furniture in such high regard. The furniture, of course, that I'm talking about, we know as the Ark or the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. There's a number of names that we can look at. And so the Israelites, I don't know if you can see that, it's sort of small script there, but the Israelites brought the ark. This is, Hophna, uh, this is uh, the two sons of Eli. They brought it from Shiloh where the sanctuary had been set up since they had come into the promised land. They brought it down to the valley here where the Hebrews and the Philistines, represented by that H&P, were encamped. Now this isn't far from where some years later in the valley of Elah, David would fight Goliath just here, um, not too far away, um, to a little to the west. And so they brought the ark down, and instead of having the um, instead of having the effect that they had hoped of the ark bringing them victory, they were soundly and even more completely defeated in battle. You see, God wasn't needing a good luck charm. Uh, to attend his people. What he was needing was their hearts, right? 
He was needing their, 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 uh, their hearts, their minds, their obedience. And so the Philistines, as they conquered the Israelites on that day, or at least won that battle, they, uh, they captured the ark and they took it all the way down along, oh, we perceive it would have come all the way down here, all the way to Ashdod. Now, the, the, um, in the city of Ashdod, there was a special temple, the house of Dagon. Dagon was their god there in, in Ashdod. And uh, so they put it there in the house of, of Dagon, not even themselves daring to open the cover that was over this golden artifice. And the next morning when they went into the temple of Dagon, the house of Dagon, they actually discovered their idol, their god, had fallen off his pedestal and was prostrate face down towards the Ark of the Covenant. You can read all about it, 1 Samuel 4 and 5 and 6. And uh, they were quite, quite uh, perturbed by this. They didn't know what to think of it, so they quickly and uh, uh, carefully put their god back up on his pedestal um, thinking it must have been some, you know, freak accident that brought this about. The next morning they went in, and not only had their, dog, Dagon, their god Dagon fallen in the same manner, but now his head and his hands had broken off, and he was in pieces. And they had to do quick repairs and put their god back. And they started getting the idea, this god of Israel that we thought our gods were greater than because we, we, we beat them in battle, he has something on our God, Dagon. And before long, they began to uh, have a plague in Ashdod, a disease that even caused some fatalities. So quickly they got rid of the ark, and this time they sent it down to Gath. And notice the route that it would have taken, presumably through Ashkelon and, and down to Gath. Um, the only problem was in Gath, the inhabitants of the city also had the same plague fall upon them that they'd had in Ashdod. And so they sent the ark all the way up to Ekron. And uh, the people at Ekron said, Oh no, they've brought the ark of the covenant here. Its reputation had preceded it, you see. They've brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. That was the response that we read in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. And for seven months the ark continued to be in Philistia, and there continued to be problems. There continued to be these plagues and, and uh, ill fortune falling upon them. Finally, they gathered the priests. And let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Let's read here in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 6 what happened when they gathered their wise men together from across the land of Philistia. And it says in verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7. And by the way, if you read the context here, they're saying, you remember what happened to, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? <laughs> they had to study their history, and they knew, listen, let's just not mess with this God of the Israelites. Verse 7, it says, Now therefore make a new cart, and take two milk cows, on which there has come no yoke, and tie the cows to the cart, and bring their calves home from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and lay it upon the cart, and put the jewels of gold which you... We returned to him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side of it and send it away and uh, that it may go. Now, what's the jewel of gold, jewels of gold that it was, they were talking about? They were going to put in a box beside the ark. Notice with me in verse 4. Uh, what shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? Talking about the God of Israel. Of course, God doesn't care about their gifts of gold. 
Um, but this is the pagan mindset on display here. What shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden imrods and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. So why did they choose five? Because there's five kings of the Philistines. There were basically five cities which had made up this um, confederacy of Philistia, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Gaza, and Ekron, these five cities. And during its seven months in the, in the Philistine territory, the ark had made it to at least four, if not all, of the five territories. They had handed them off to each of their, their, uh, their comrades, you might say. And they all are now ready to get rid of it. And so one golden mice, one golden um, uh, emerald for each of the cities and the kings of the Philistines. For the plague was upon you and all of your lords. And so that's what they did. They hitched, the, they hitched this uh, cart, a brand new wooden cart. They hitched it to two, calves, two cows that had recently had calves. If you've ever tried to separate a mother cow from its calves, um, it's not an easy proposition. And um, so, but this is what the wise men said to do. They did it. They took the calves and, and, and took them away from the mother cows, and then they turned them loose. And what do you think those cows did? The Bible records that they headed straight towards the land of Israel. And they made their way all the way down this road, all the way to, well, I guess as they passed Beth Shemesh, they were starting to enter the Israeli territory, the, and... Um, there were some who actually working in a field saw it going by and they stopped it and they, and they kept the, the ark there for some time and eventually it made its way to Kerjath Jerem where it stayed for a number of years, about nine miles from Jerusalem. And it would stay there actually until, until David would bring the ark um, up to uh, the tabernacle once again. And so the Philistines were doing the very best they could to appease the God of Israel. They put in the side of the ark, in a box beside the ark, they put these five mice. Now, as we look at why this ark was so important to Israel, why they thought it was going to be powerful, and why eventually the, the Philistines had to return it, we have to begin to look at what Jesus or the God says about uh, building the ark. And Exodus chapter 25, once again, we're going to look there. Exodus chapter 25, and it's uh, something we noticed the very first night, I believe, that when the Lord said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, the very first thing he asked them to build or gave them instructions on how to build was the ark. Um, it, it might be counterintuitive because you would think you would begin with, you know, maybe the courtyard. Uh, that's the way we build a building, right? The outer structure, and then, you know, we don't start with the, the dining room table and then build the house. We do the other way around. But God began with instructions on building the ark, and it's something for us to notice at least. He says in verse 10, They shall make an ark of shittim wood or acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make it upon it a crown of gold round about. Now, um, this is very interesting because I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but this is where we're reading right now. Um, is it, you see how it's supposed to be overlaid within and without? Um, according to the rabbis and some of the records that we have, what they actually did is they made a gold box and then an acacia box and then a gold box. So it's sort of like three concentric boxes inside of each other. The wood fit inside the outer gold shell, and then the, the inner gold 
uh, shell fit not just inside the other two boxes, but cover the top of them. Does that make sense? So it, it overlapped on the top like a lip that went around it. And of course, the, he describes the, um, the rest of it as well. Verse 17, thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, and two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work thou shalt make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on one end, the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat you shall make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the two cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. It's almost as if God is really wanting the whole focus of the sanctuary to be right here between these two cherubims. They're looking, he's, he's giving very specific instructions as to how they're to be built and even where they're to be looking. Isn't that interesting? They're to be looking towards each other, towards where his Shekinah glory would actually dwell. Let's skip down uh, verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. We'll read about that in just a minute. Something was to go inside the ark. Now, remember the mice which the Philistines sent, they put them on the side of the ark in a box, right? And some have even conjectured that there may have been there may have been in the way those outer boxes were made there was room for something to be placed um, but that's that's um, probably difficult to actually prove the point is there was only he only mentions here one thing that was supposed to go in the ark and we're going to look at other places where further instructions were given and there were other things in the ark as well they shall put the, in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give thee. Verse 22, and there I will meet with thee. What did he say in verse 8? Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. If there's any article of furniture which was, was, was especially to fulfill the purpose of the sanctuary, the end goal of the sanctuary, it would have been the ark of the covenant. Of course, um, that's not the only thing he had them build. Um, that was just part of his instructions. There I will meet with thee, and I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. And then he continues on with other articles of furniture. So where was this ark to be placed? You remember? If we were to look at the cutaway here of the, the tabernacle, we come into the courtyard and we meet the altar of sacrifice, the laver. In the holy place, we have the table of showbread, the candlestick, the menorah. We have the altar of incense here, which actually, remember, we saw in 1 Kings chapter 6, it's talked about as being a part of the holy place service, as well as being located in the it's, it's talked about as being a part of the most holy place, as well as being located in the holy place. We'll see that again tonight in the book of Hebrews. And then in the most holy place, the most innermost sanctum, you might say, innermost sanctuary of the whole, um, the whole building, the whole plan, this is where the ark of God was to reside. Now, I want to show you one other drawing, which maybe you can see, maybe you can't, but this is sort of a sketch. If you were to make a scale drawing of what the sanctuary was supposed to be, how it was supposed to be laid out and positioned, here's the, um, I guess I should have probably tipped that over where it wouldn't be actually north and south and so forth, but here's the entrance on the east, right? 
and you would come in the sanctuary, and you notice if you were to bisect the whole tabernacle, which was 100 cubits by 50 cubits, if you were to bisect it and draw a line 50 cubits by 50 cubits, and then put the center of that, again, what is in the very center of that part of the sanctuary? It's the altar, um, the altar of sacrifice, um, right there in the, in the center. Um, as you continue on through the sanctuary or through the courtyard, you would find the laver. And then about the midway point of the sanctuary, we find the beginning of the tabernacle. And if again you bisect this half of the courtyard, in the very center of that half resided the Ark of the Covenant. Um, again, God is so orderly, isn't he? He has everything so neatly laid out. And, and I believe there's a purpose. There's, he's drawing the focus of the people to the altar and to the ark. Where salvation's process begins, you might say, and where salvation's process ends. The beginning and the completion of the whole plan of redemption. But let's look on at some other things that we can learn from about the ark tonight. Um, what does the word translated ark used to describe the ark in the Old Testament mean? Well, there's, in the English, we have a number of times ark is used. We have Noah's ark, and it's actually the same word. Um, uh, Noah's ark is the same word being used to describe Noah's ark as the ark of the covenant, the tabernacle ark. Um, uh, particularly, and this is the same also in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We also have some interesting terms. By the way, one, one, one time where the work, word ark is used, which at least in the King James Version, it's not the same word, is when Moses was born. You remember he was put in a basket, and uh, I, think, I think King James calls it an ark. But it's a different word. It's not the same word that's being described here. But there was another time in Genesis, um, Joseph's coffin. Um, when Joseph was placed in the coffin for his bones to be taken back with the children of Israel when they would leave um, some 400 years later, the, um, they, the word used to describe that coffin, that casket they put his body in, was the same word used as the ark. Um, in the time of Joash, when the temple was in disrepair, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, we find that, um, remember, there was a collection chest placed out so that the people could put in their offerings, and the generosity of the people was actually enough to do a renovation. Of course, in the cleaning of the, the temple, they found the law of God, the books of Moses, and they read it to the people, and it brought about a revival and a reformation, a wonderful chapter in the history of Israel. But that collection chest is uh, the same word that is just used to talk about the ark um, in the temple, in the tabernacle. Um, and so what we, would, what we would sort of, I guess we would conclude from that is the word ark is used in the Old Testament to describe something to contain that which is valuable. Does that make sense? It's, it's not so much like we think of it an ark as a noun that is, we use the, either associate it with Noah's Ark, I suppose, with the Ark of the Testament, but it's simply a, a, it's sort of like a vault. The word vault in English, you understand what that means, right? You're going to put something valuable in that vault. And that's sort of what the word would mean in the, uh, to the Hebrew reader, um, to the Old Testament reader. This is, a, this is something that protects something valuable. What was so valuable that was to be placed in that Ark? We'll look at that here in a few minutes. And so what 
um, is interesting about the ark is that it was mentioned more than any other article of the sanctuary. Now, this is a little odd because the other articles of furniture were used on a daily basis, every single day, 359 days in the Hebrew year, and then every few years there was an extra month, so it'd be a longer year to keep on the, the lunar and the, the solar calendars. But 359 days out of the year, the daily uh, ministration of the priests would include the altar of, of sacrifice, the laver, the, the, every morning the lamps were trimmed and oil was filled, in the evening the same, the uh, showbread, maybe not every day, but at least on a regular basis, every week at least, the showbread was baked and replaced, a new fresh showbread every Sabbath, the altar of incense was used every single day. And only one day of year was the Ark of the Covenant used. And yet, it's mentioned 185 times more than any of the rest of the articles of furniture. Very interesting. Now, let's look at some of the names that the Ark is um, referred to as. Um, it's not just called the Ark. It's called the Ark, and usually some other um, word is, is added to that. And um, let's look at some of those names. It's called the Holy Ark in Second Chronicles 35 and verse 3. Um, it's also called the Ark of His Strength in Second Chronicles 6 and verse 41. Um, also, we see that it's called the uh, Ark of Our God, and that's the word Elohim. The Ark of Elohim is there mentioned. Um, thank you. The Ark of Elohim. We continue on. We see in Joshua 3, in verse 13, it's called the uh, Ark of the Lord, and that's Yahweh or Jehovah. It's mentioned a number of times both ways. The Ark of Yahweh or the Ark of Jehovah. We also see it called as the Ark of the Lord God, and this is Adonai Jehovah um, in 1 Kings 2 and verse 26. The different names of God are being connected with the Ark of God, and of course, you know those names mean different things, and we don't have time to go into the different meanings of the names of God, but they all reflect qualities or characteristics of God. It's also called the Ark of His Testimony, and this is, this is a number of times used. In fact, when God is speaking of it in Exodus 25, giving Moses the instructions of how to build it, God calls it the Ark of my testimony. And very interesting. And this was because of something that was to be put into it, um, which it was to hold, something very valuable, the testimony. And we'll look at that here in a few moments. The Ark of the Covenant of Jehovah. Very interesting, isn't it? The Ark of the Covenant. And um, we could have a whole study just on the covenants and how that relates, the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Testimony. These are two concepts that, believe it or not, are closely related. And so these are all different names that are used to describe the ark, and from them we, we draw some conclusions. Now, I mentioned earlier that historians believe the, from rabbis' records that the ark was made of three concentric boxes, a gold box with an acacia box, and then a gold box that fit inside the, the, the outer two boxes. So the, the acacia was completely wrapped in gold. It was completely surrounded by gold. In fact, the mercy seat, this is a description from Josephus, the Antiquities, uh, book three, I believe. Um, I wrote two here, but I think it's three in my notes. 
Um, the mercy seat formed a lid which was attached to the ark by golden hinges after a wonderful manner, which cover was every way evenly fitted to it and had no eminence to hinder its exact conjunction. In other words, the hinges and the way that the ark was put together, there was, you couldn't see the seams. It was so perfectly done. You know, the, the Bible records that when the artisans went to build the sanctuary, God gave them special gifts, and they were able to do it in a way that was... It was, it was very remarkable, the way in which the temple, uh, the sanctuary with its furniture was constructed. Um, so this was a, it was a beautiful piece of furniture, and of course it was um, to be kept in the most, most holy place. There were three things that the ark contained, and I want us to turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look here in Hebrews chapter 9 at the New Testament record, and then we're going to go back to the Old Testament and find the evidence that Paul is no doubt citing or referring to. It's interesting, once again, we're looking at how much sanctuary language and sanctuary knowledge there is in the New Testament, right? Um, the apostles, uh, Paul particularly, being a rabbi, being a part of the Sanhedrin, being a scholar of the Jews, Paul particularly had a an in-depth grasp of the sanctuary service, and that's what he's writing about in the book of Hebrews. He's pointing to the meaning of the ceremonies which the Jews had been going through for centuries but not comprehending, and he's proving that they pointed forward to Jesus. Um, he's writing this book especially to his own people, the Hebrews. And so in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, he's talking about what is in the uh, sanctuary. And I want us to just notice something here. We'll read some context here because I want you to notice a corroboration to what we read in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 22 last night with the altar of incense being included in the most holy place. Notice what Paul says. Um, the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made. What's he talking about? He's talking about the sanctuary in the wilderness. The, uh, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the, holies, um, the holy place. Um, and the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So Paul's simply referring to the holy place and the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary. And notice he said in the holy place there were how many pieces of furniture? He says there were two. Um, I know we, we know that there were three, but Paul, being a student of the Scriptures and a student of the ceremonies and a student of what had happened back there in 1 Kings, the Hebrews understood evidently that the, while the uh, holy place literally contained the altar of incense, it belonged as part of the ceremonies of the most holy place. Notice what he says. In the first tabernacle... Uh, there was a candlestick and the table of showbread. And the second veil, there was the holiest of all, which had the golden censer. That's the altar of incense. There sat on that table. The censer sat there. And the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So, what are the three things that we find in the Ark of the Covenant according to... Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4. First of all, there's what? There's a golden pot of manna. So let's look back here at um, Exodus chapter 16, and we'll find that story. 
Now, it's interesting because this is, this is a story that occurred before the ark was built, before the tabernacle was built, but it's recorded evidently after it's built. So you can understand that there's some, there's some details here in this story that aren't exactly chronological. Does that make sense? Um, Exodus 16 and verse 33, this is talking about the provision God miraculously made for the people for manna, remember? Six days of the week, it was, it was there in the morning. And uh, if they took more than one day's worth, it would spoil. God wanted to teach them to be industrious, to be early risers, to be self-motivated. They were a nation of slaves that had only worked when they were forced to work. And God was going to teach them, not only provide for them, but help them to learn good eth work ethics, right? And if they didn't get up early, that manna would vanish as the sun hit it and it got hot during the day. But the seventh day, there was no manna, and God worked a miracle every week. You can read about it here in Exodus chapter 16. The seventh day, they were told to prepare for it by taking twice as much on the sixth day, and even though it rotted every other day if they kept it overnight, it was perfectly good when they kept it overnight on the seventh day. And so, um, God, had, God did so many things with the manna. He provided for their food. He taught them work ethic. He taught them the, uh, the importance of keeping the Sabbath as a rest day. But notice with me in verse 33. Moses says to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And so the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up, what does it say? Before the testimony to be kept. Now, again, I would just argue that this, this doesn't make a lot of sense because this is the very first word, very first time that testimony is found in Scripture. And so what do we even think he's talking about? It's hard for us to know. It's not until Exodus chapter 20 that God gives the Ten Commandments. It's not until Exodus chapter 25 that God tells him to build the ark and to put the testimony therein. And so this being event having taken place before, um, or at least starting to take place before. I suppose it may have been taking place throughout the whole time they were getting the ark built. Um, it's recorded, at least afterwards, and it's recorded here that that manna would be taken and put into the uh, ark next to the testimony. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, there was the pot of manna that Aaron placed there. Um, Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. The second thing that Paul said was in the ark in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, it says, Aaron's rod that budded. So let's look in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 17 and verses 1 through 10. We won't read all of those for the sake of time. But you know the story of the challenge to Aaron's authority. There are other Levites who of the house of Korah and Dathan. And, um, well, they weren't all Levites. Two of them were Levites, I believe. Dathan and Abiram. Uh, Korah was a son of Levi. Um, they challenged Aaron's authority. Um, they said, we're all holy men. Why can't we be a part of the tabernacle? Why, do, why can't we be doing these duties? And um, as a result of this, there was a test, I guess you might say, undertaken. And each of the 12 tribes were to send a representative with a cut-off branch, a rod, taken off from a tree. And um, in Exodus, uh, Numbers chapter 17, it says, uh, verse 5, And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I will choose will blossom, 
And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmured against you. Boy, God's optimistic about that. The Israelites had a hard time stopping murmuring. But at least on this issue, they were going to be quiet. They were going to be silent. It wasn't good enough that the ground had opened the swallowed up men and all the rest. They wanted to have a evidence. So they, um, they bring these 12 rods. They place them before the Lord. In fact, it says that um, he puts them in the tabernacle of witness before the Lord. In verse 8, it came to pass that on the next morning, on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. How do you like that? <laughs> the test was which one is going to have flowers on it. And uh, Aaron's rod didn't just have flowers. It had, it had buds and blossoms and fruit on it um, all overnight. Um, a, a, obviously a miracle of divine life, right? Um, because no human being could have a detached branch bloom, much less uh, have fruit on it overnight. And so this is one of those things that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, it says in verse 10, the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the what? Before the testimony. Where was the manna put? Before the testimony. The, the, uh, the rod of Aaron that budded was to be put before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels that thou shalt take away from, uh, that shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, they die, die not. And, and Moses did so, as the Lord God commanded him. And so, Paul, evidently reading these scriptures, he, he concluded that the testimony, the ark of the testimony, contained the testimony. The, uh, ma the pot of manna was to be put next to the testimony, or before the testimony. The rod, the budded, was to be put before the testimony. They all must have been in the ark. The third item that Paul mentions in Hebrews chapter 9 is the testimony themselves and uh, the covenant itself. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4. And I'll just flip back there and read it so I get it, the wording right. It says, um, There was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So let's look at what the tables of the covenant um, were speaking of. We already read Exodus chapter 25 and verse 16 where God you know, calls it the ark of his testament. And he says in Exodus 25 and verse 16 that um, thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. And um, we notice then in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29. It says, And it came to pass... Uh, let's read verse 28 too. This is talking about Moses being in the mountain with God. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, he did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And Aaron and the congregation were afraid of him. So... What, does it, what, what, what were the tables of the covenant or the test, t tables of the testimony according to this passage? They were the Ten Commandments, and they were given by God there in uh, Mount Sinai, and their destination was supposed to be the Ark 
that was, had, had actually been built specifically for, at least in Exodus 25, God called it the Ark of His Testament. And when referring to put things next to it, he put it before the testimony. That was the, the purpose for this ark, was to hold these tables on which were written the Ten Commandments. Now, we know what happened. There was a, there was a bit of a problem with the, um, the first, uh, not, nothing wrong with the first tables, but when uh, Moses found the children of Israel dancing around the golden calf, he actually threw down those tables and they broke. And so if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, we find that there is a record of a second table being made. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and uh, verses 2 through 5 we'll read. Um, we'll just start with verse 1. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew the two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which you broke, and thou shalt put them where? In the ark. Now remember, from Exodus 34, what was on the two tables which he broke? They were the Ten Commandments, right? So once again, God is giving the Ten Commandments, and he's, he says, I will write them, and, uh, and put them in the ark. And he says, I made an ark of shittim wood and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first and went up into the mount, having the two tables in my hand. And he, and in the New King James and other modern translations, it capitalizes that he because it's referring to God. He wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire of the day of assembly. And God, Lord, gave them unto me. And... Um, and, and so forth. And so here you have the three items that are found in the Ark of the Testimony were the golden pot of manna, Aaron's budding rod, and the tables of the covenant, according to Hebrews 9.4, or the Ten Commandments, the tables of the covenant. That's sort of a funny name, isn't it? When we think of the Ten Commandments, we can sort of see testimony, I guess, but the tables of his covenant. And yet we remember that also in Hebrews, Hebrews, just, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 10, on either side of this account of the tables of the covenant being in the ark of the testimony, we have Paul quoting, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for those days. I will write my law in their hearts. You see, the children of Israel tried to obey the law of God on their own efforts. They essentially tried to reform their outward behavior. In fact, when God appeared to them in Exodus chapter 20 and spoke the Ten Commandments, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, how far did that go, you think? That's why the Bible says, a couple days of that, uh, that's why the Bible says the new, the new Covenant is built on better promises. It's not because God makes better promises in the New Testament. It's because the Old Covenant people, they tried to do it on their own, with their own promises. And God says, no, that's impossible. And I want you to realize that this isn't something that God just reserved for New Testament Christians because Paul is quoting, when he, when he, when he quotes in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will write my law in their hearts and put it in the, their mo innermost parts. He's quoting from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, right? And so God wanted that experience with His people even in the Old Testament. You see, you, you can't make yourself a good person. Or, well, I should take that back. You can make yourself a good person. 
we cannot make ourselves a holy person, a holy, obedient, commandment-keeping person. We can't. But God promises to do what we can't do from the outside in. He promises to do it from the inside out. You see? And uh, so that like Jesus, spoken of by the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written in my heart. That was a prophecy of Jesus. All scholars agree with that, right? That's how Jesus came, with commandment keeping, with obeying God's will being his first desire. And the promise God gives us in Hebrews is that he will do the same for us. He will write his law in our hearts. That's his job to do. It's our job to let him, right? Um, if we learned anything last night from the sanctuary, if we noticed anything last night, it's that this whole process is by faith in the priest, by faith in Jesus. We follow Jesus through the sanctuary, right? But part of that sanctuary journey, which we are intended to follow Jesus through, includes a trip into the most holy place where the presence of God was and where the law itself was kept. Now, three things that we can see about God from these items that are kept in the Ark of the Covenant. We can see that there, um, the, 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 the pot of manna, the budding rod, and the tables of His covenant. We can see three aspects of God's relationship with His people. We can see God as our provider. Can you see that? You know, especially during the closing era of the plan of salvation, the last days, there may be times when we are placed in difficult straits. We don't live in an easy world, do we? But as we enter the most holy place, as we look at what's in the Ark of the Covenant, we see that pot of man and that golden pot of man, and we remember that God doesn't need anything to provide for our needs. He has a thousand ways to fulfill, to fill our needs that we don't even know about yet. He can speak manna that comes as the dew, food. And uh, when he says, um, your bread and water will be sure, we can know that he can take care of his people, right? As David, the psalmist says, I've been old and I've been young, and I've not seen the righteous lacking or his seed begging bread. God takes care of his own. So God is our provider. We also see in that that uh, budding rod, that God is our source of life. God is the one who gives us life. And let me tell you, if God can give life to a disconnected stick, branch, then I would propose to you this evening that God could even bring life to a dead heart like mine. God is in the business of creating and he is the source of life. And when we see the Ark of the Covenant, we see what's in it, we see that rod that budded, and we are reminded God can give a dead thing life. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news for me. And um, I presume it's good news for each one of us. The third thing that we see is that Ark of His testimony. And we see that God is the source of our morality, and He is our judge. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we can talk about, and we could spend a whole lecture just on ethics and whether it's possible to have internal ex ethics or external ethics or whatever. Um, if there's possibility of ethics without a God or an external source, um, you're aware of the, um, the controversy that Ben Carson got himself into a year or two ago 
He's the neurosurgeon who said that, um, he said at some point that uh, uh, evolution challenges us to find a source of ethics that without a creator, without an external source of ethics, that we have no definite morality, no definite code of morality. I don't know if you followed that. It was only in the news for a couple days. He was scheduled to be a graduation speaker at Emory, and it caused this big, I think 70 or 80 faculty signed a petition to have him not speak because of this. And he, re he, he, replied, <laughs> he replied with such a uh, forceful reply that it just, it just ended there. He gave a whole litany of evolutionary ethicists who say the exact same thing that he just said. Um, he, I mean, just one after another, after another, after another of respected leaders in their field today, um, scholars and ethicists. And, um, but what we see here is that right there in the very presence of God, God instructed the Ten Commandments to be housed, to be kept. Um, there, there's a lot of symbolism that we can see in that. We could see that you know, any government has laws as its foundation. We can see that. Um, but we can also see that God is our source of morality, and He is our judge. And especially as we think of, we're going to talk tomorrow morning about the, uh, what happened when the ark was used on the Day of Atonement. And it's a wonderfully beautiful ceremony that took place where the altar was, the altar and the Ark of the Covenant joined hands, you might say, on the, on the Day of Atonement. And blood found its way all the way to the Ark of the Covenant, right over the law. And where the sinner would be condemned by that law, the mercy and the grace of Jesus satisfied that law. And uh, we'll, I, I, I we'll talk more about that tomorrow if you're able to be here. If not, um, we can get the recordings for you. So God is our provider. God is our source of life. God is our judge. And the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, interestingly enough, I hope you can see some of this. The book of Levit Leviticus, in fact, the whole Pentateuch we see here from, um, sorry, from Genesis to uh, Deuteronomy, the first five books, we see as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a Hebrew literary device where they would write, sort of like you have a poem. We're familiar with poetry, which is like A, B, B, A. Well, um, in the Hebrew writing, we see lots of chiasms, and much of the Old Testament is actually poetry. In newer translations, you see that they're set off into verse form instead of just, you know, justified um, text. Um, but... Hebrew, Hebrew thinking thought often in chiasms, and so what you would see, you would see, you would see thoughts that built in progression, and then a, 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 uh, a descending order paralleling the thoughts that built on the other side. So here you have, for example, we see in the first 16, uh, 15 books of uh, Leviticus, you have all these sacrifices of things that were to be done in the sanctuary, offerings and so forth. In the, uh, the last half of the book of Leviticus, you actually see more like how the priests were to behave, how the people were to behave, the different laws and regulations. And so some scholars look at this and they see there's actually a chiasm in the book of, of uh, Moses and specifically in the book of Leviticus, where the first part of the book we could generally speak about as 
pointing forward to justification, and the last part of the book talking about how as a result of our, uh, the blood, you might say, we live our lives. And the very top of that book, uh, or that chiasm, which is always the most important thought that the author is trying to draw the attention to, the very top of that chiasm is the 16th chapter of Leviticus. And that is the, that ex, that is the time, that is the chapter which describes what would take place once a year with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, in the Most Holy Place. And so what I would like to just sort of um, propose to you is that the, the Day of Atonement being the last part of the, dealing, the cycle of dealing with sin throughout the sanctuary year, every year there were, every day there were uh, sacrifices and offerings made and sins confessed and sins transferred to the sanctuary, right? And transferred to the priests. We've talked about that on, the, on our second night. The, the blood went into the sanctuary, sprinkled before the veil, inscribed, your sins are inscribed on the horns of the altar, Jeremiah 17 verse 1 says. Um, so the sin was being transferred day by day into the heavenly sanctuary or into the earthly sanctuary in the figure. As we confess, for, confess our sins, they're transferred into the heavenly sanctuary, right? But before this sanctuary service or types or, or symbols were finished, there was once a year a Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was to accomplish something very specific. And now we're just going to look at it very briefly, and then we're going to close here this evening. Leviticus chapter 16, I just want to point out a couple of verses as we look at it briefly um, tonight. Leviticus 16, and notice with me verse Let's begin reading with verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for who? Himself and for his house. So the priests are to have a special offering on the Day of Atonement, um, specifically for himself and for his house, for the priests. Shall kill the bullock, the sin offering, and so forth. Um, if we continue on down... And uh, notice with me what he says. He shall take a censer, verse 12, full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. A large amount of incense and a big coal, fresh coal, off the altar would be put into the censer. And then it says, He shall put the incense before, upon the fire before the Lord, there in the altar of incense, that the cloud of the incense may cover what? The mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take the blood of the bullock, that's the one he just killed for himself and for his house, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Then he will kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do that with the blood that which he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before uh, the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of what? The uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins, so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So God, God says here, on the day of atonement, the priest is to make atonement, which is just, it's just a word for reconciliation. In fact, the, the, there was no word that the Bible translators could think of that really meant what the Hebrew word meant here. And so they made up their own word. It's literally in English, it's just the contraction of at one meant. It's the bringing together of different parties. That's what the word meant in the Hebrew. And they said, well, we give up. We'll just make up a word. And so atonement 
is actually a, a, a biblically inspired word that comes from the meaning here of this Hebrew. And it says, He shall make an atonement for the holy place. So notice what's been cleaned here, or reconciled or justified. The priests, why? Well, all throughout the year, the priests had been eating of those lambs and symbolically becoming sin bearers, right? But guess what? Jesus is not going to be a sin bearer forever, is he? In fact, Paul says, says in the book of Hebrews, when he comes again, he's going to come without sin the second time. The last, chap, last verse of Hebrews chapter 9, I think it's verse 27. So the final part of this whole plan of salvation includes dealing with the sin that has accumulated in the heavenly sanctuary. And that's what we're going to be looking at more tomorrow. The, the priest is cleaned in his house. The congregation is cleaned, uh, made atonement for because of the uncleanness. And the holy place or the sanctuary is also clean, cleansed. And notice with me, verse. let's just skip down to verse 17 and then verse 20 real briefly. And there shall no man be in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he comes out and have made an atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. Verse 20, And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And that's going to be the ceremony of the live goat. It doesn't get killed. It doesn't get sacrificed. But that's our topic tomorrow when we look at that, the last good riddance, the, uh, the getting rid of sin. So once a year, the high priest was to uh, enter into the most holy place and to sprinkle blood upon the very mercy seat. Now, imagine the symbolism that is taking place here. Here we see the law being held right there in the Ark of the Testimony, right? That is one of the things that is in the Ark. In fact, I would argue that the Ten Commandments, the t tablets of stone, are the primary thing in the Ark of the Testimony because the other things were said to be put before them, Right? Um, it's always, they're always in reference to that. It didn't say, well, put the Ten Commandments next to Aaron's pot that buds. Uh, <laughs> Aaron's rod that buds in the pot of manna. He said, put those things next to the Ten Commandments, right? And so here you have the law of God, which is the standard of morality, which we have all transgressed and broken, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. We cannot, we cannot Justice demands our death, right? That's what justice would be. But here you have on the Day of Atonement the ultimate kissing together, meeting together of justice and mercy, of the penalty of the law and the grace of Jesus. The blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, and it's as if God is saying, that's enough. That's satisfactory. When that blood reaches on the mercy seat, the rest of those sins which have been confessed on the sanctuary, which have been borne by the priest, they're all done away with finally and forever. But I'm getting ahead of myself for tomorrow. So this is a symbolism going on here of what takes place on the very last ceremonies to deal with the sins and uncleanness of Israel. It all started there in the courtyard when the sinner confessed his sin and it was transferred to the sanctuary, transferred to the priest. It ends on the Day of Atonement when reconciliation is made for the holy place, for the priests, and for the people.
and as we're going to see, sin is done away with eternally. What a wonderful object lesson we have in the sanctuary from beginning to end. And we've just had a very cursory look at a few of the items that we can learn about. Tomorrow evening, we're going, or tomorrow morning, if you're able to come, we're going to have the VBS graduation. The kids will be a part of that program. And then I'll be in a short message sharing about the last good riddance, the very last activities of the Day of Atonement and what they mean for us. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful Savior you are. Standing before the law of God, we are condemned, but for your blood. Thank you for shedding your blood on Calvary's cross. Thank you for giving your, yourself as a sacrifice. Thank you for the ways in which you plan to not only forgive us for our sins, but to cleanse us from our sins and, Lord, to, to restore us one day in a world where there's no more sin. Not even a sin bearer. But sin will be forever done away with. And Lord, it's all here in the sanctuary. We've only had a few minutes tonight to get an overview, but I just want to pray that as we've studied the Ark of the Covenant, Lord, we've been touching on holy things, and I just want to pray for each person here, with myself included, that, that we might experience that covenant, that new covenant that you want to have with each one of us. As you've promised, you, would, you will change our hearts. You'll write your law in our hearts and put, them, put it in our most inmost parts. Lord, not that we would then have, to, then have to seek to obey you out of fear or in order for a reward. But Lord, because you're our Savior and because of that blood and because of a miracle of new life that you've worked in our hearts and because you're feeding us every day, just like you fed the Israelites with the manna, Lord... Help us to have that experience, that we can be a part of that new covenant experience, and that one day when we stand before the judgment, that that blood might cover our sins, and Jesus standing before you might argue in our behalf that indeed it is sufficient, that justice has met mercy, and mercy has won. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.